All right. Mark 1, 21 through 28 is where we find ourselves this morning. Hmm. It's been two years since Jeanette passed away. Just came across this in my Bible. It's amazing how time flies. So. And they went to Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue. I'm sorry, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him, and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Let's pray. Father, we at least ought to tremble to consider that the message of the gospel has been hidden from so many. Uh, Though read aloud each week at synagogue, the disciples and leaders of Israel missed the coming of the kingdom in Jesus. You revealed a great mystery to Paul that he might proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ to the nations. And so be with me as I preach these same inexhaustible riches, uh, that by that same Spirit enable us all to understand, to believe, and to apply those riches for the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, Feeling a a call to the ministry, I began the process in the late 80s, early 90s of trying to identify a seminary I could go to. And when you don't know much, (laughs) that can be a very scary prospect (laughs) in certain ways. Um, And I was growing in my knowledge and growing in my understanding. And uh, actually, one of the key people in my life uh, was R.C. Sproul in that whole process. Uh, I had gotten connected to him through an ad that I saw in Discipleship Magazine and uh, started to just buy series after series and book after book. And that was an important thing for me. Because while I was at a Baptist church, there were still questions I had, like about baptism and about the Lord's table. I didn't think I had it all figured out and I wanted to go to a place where I could figure it out, where God could be at work in me. And initially at that point in time, R.C. was in Jackson, Mississippi. And I thought, I'm not sure I'll do well in Jackson, Mississippi. 
There was just something in my mind. Maybe it had something to do with the, the movie Mississippi Burning. I'm not sure, but I wasn't sure if this Yankee would do okay in Mississippi. And any apologies to anyone from Mississippi this morning. Um, but then I saw an ad that RC was going to RTS Orlando. And I decided that is where I will go to seminary. While I was there, I learned a lot from a lot of people. But I also learned some things about RC. Um, I ended up working for him for a while, and I learned that he was an ordinary person just like you, just like me. That he had his strengths, he had his weaknesses, he had his foibles, his warts, his blemishes, just like everyone else. Last week, we saw how Jesus encountered four fishermen. And Jesus said to those four fishermen, come, follow me. And so this week we begin that process of understanding what it is they discovered when they followed Jesus. Would they discover an ordinary man like R.C. Sproul who happened to be a gifted teacher, or would they find something else altogether? And that's really where we are this morning. What did the four fishermen learn about Jesus as they followed him to become fishers of men? Well, we see that while Jesus called them by the Sea of Galilee, that it says that they went to Capernaum. And we have a nice little map of Capernaum up here. And we'll note, if we remember from our studies of the Gospel of John, that Peter was actually from Bethsaida, which is just to the east of uh, and north of Capernaum. Peter ended up moving to Capernaum because we see in the next passage that we're going to look at next week that his mother-in-law lived there and they stayed in the house. So, boom, right there on the Sea of Galilee, probably filled with fishermen, but also because we see green nearby and because of the presence of the sea, there was also a whole lot of agriculture that was going on. The name Capernaum itself refers to the village of Nahum, quite possibly the prophet Nahum from the Old Testament, but we're not exactly sure if that's the Nahum that is in mind. But we also should recognize, in terms of the geography, that Capernaum was on one of the trade routes. Okay, makes sense, okay, being a town that's right, a, a fairly large town that is right on uh, the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee, another word for that, or name for that, uh, that that's going to be an important place. Uh, a place you can get to easily, and you can get to other places fairly easily. As a result of it being on this trade route, it has a tax office. That's going to become pertinent later on, as we'll see. It also has a military outpost, because we'll see later on, not today, but later on, uh, that there is a centurion that's going to be involved in what happens while Jesus is in Capernaum. Capernaum becomes, in a sense, Jesus' ministry base. This is the place from which he's going to continue to do his ministry. He'll do tours of other areas, and he'll always come back to Capernaum. One of the interesting things as I went to seminary was not only did R.C. teach at Orlando, at RTS Orlando, but he moved his ministry base from Ligonier Valley, Pennsylvania, down to Lake Mary, Florida, which is just north of Orlando. Jesus and his disciples begin this uh, ministry, and we see that it begins right off the bat. On the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, or perhaps better, he began teaching. Jesus begins or continues his public ministry, 
And he's doing it within the context of the synagogue in this particular instance. And it's going to be a regular feature of what Jesus does. It's not the only place Jesus teaches, but it is one of the many places that Jesus teaches in his public ministry. Jesus, in other words, is not sort of a rogue rabbi who has been kicked out of the synagogues at this particular point in time. But he speaks, in a sense, to the establishment in the established places. He's not speaking in some hidden uh, room somewhere. It's not secret, but he's out in the open to be heard by many. And I think that's important when you think about uh, Mark's audience as, as Roman Christians, largely, and the fact that, that Jesus was not hiding his message, but was openly teaching this particular message. We don't have the specific content of what Jesus began to teach in the synagogue, but I think we have the summary of it from a couple passages ago. The fact that the kingdom is near and that people needed to repent and believe. Mark is focused not on the specifics of his message, but Mark is really focused on the response to his teaching. Precisely because he wants the people in Rome to respond to the teaching. The emphasis is going to be on what is your response to the teaching of Jesus that has been given to you by Peter and is going to be given to you by people like me. Will you be repenting and believing this message that the kingdom is at hand? And the response that we see initially here in the synagogue of Capernaum is that they were astonished at the teaching of Jesus. His teaching was unlike anything that they had heard before, and so you could say that they're stunned, they're amazed, they're gripped by what Jesus has to say. It was a compelling message from a compelling man in this synagogue in Capernaum. Why was it that they were so amazed, that they were astonished or gripped by the teaching of Jesus. Well, Mark continues and tells us that Jesus taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. It gets down to this idea of authority. That Jesus taught in a way that was significantly different than the scribes they were used to hearing taught. And it wasn't that he used a different sort of dynamic it was alive in Jesus. You see, the scribes would interpret Torah or the law to the people. Uh, their goal was to help the people understand uh, the law and possibly how it uh, applied to their particular circumstances in the process of how they did this, they tended to defend, explain tradition, and used expert upon expert. And so uh, imagine, I do quote from other people, and I'm going to quote from someone in just a moment, uh, but imagine for a moment if most of what I did was quoting other people. Ad infinitum. And use that to explain what it says, and I seemingly had no original thoughts of my own. That was essentially what the scribes would do. 
And so they did this in a verbal form, and eventually they put this together in writing at about uh, 200 A.D., or after the death of Jesus, in what we now call the Mishnah, their verbal tradition was developed. And that's really what it was. It was focused on the traditions of the elders, so that the people understood and followed the traditions of the elders. And here comes Jesus. And Jesus is not quoting all those guys. Jesus is speaking on his own authority and not on the authority of other men. As king, as Messiah, uh, Jesus is calling people to enter into a kingdom and to live. He's saying something very different from what the scribes would be doing who are talking merely about how to live and not mentioning the fact that they needed to repent and believe. They just needed to follow the law. They were giving sort of a a way of life that is, in a sense, almost divorced from God because it's not relying upon God. It was an attempt to live under God's authority, but not in dependence upon God at many points. But Jesus is calling people to look to Him, to follow Him. Tim Keller notes that, see, I told you I was going to quote from somebody. He didn't just clarify something that they already knew or simply interpret the Scriptures in a way that the teachers of the law did. His listeners sensed somehow that he was explaining the story of their lives as the author. And it left them dumbfounded. In other words, uh, Mark wants them to, to, the Roman Christians to understand that when this Jesus speaks, when this Jesus talks, he speaks as not only one who knows, but one who knows because he designed it. He speaks as the one who has given the law. He speaks as the one who has given life. He speaks as the one who has given the creation mandates. He speaks as the one who has redeemed a people in Exodus and is going to redeem a people at the cross. And so this is a Jesus who speaks uh, not simply from ordinary personal experience, but a Jesus who understands all human experience. Mark wants his original audience, just as Jesus did here in Mark and this, this encounter in Capernaum, he wants them to entrust themselves to Jesus, not to simply accept doctrines or a system. And that's important for us to recognize. I invite you to Jesus. He does have a a system of doctrine. But I'm not simply inviting you to a system of doctrine. It's not simply accepting ideas, but is accepting a person, the person, who is the Redeemer. Doctrine teaches us what He did and to redeem us, but we are to entrust ourselves to Him in all of this. 
And so fishing for men, if we're to think of it in that term, since, well, that's exactly what Jesus said to those four fishermen, requires, in a sense, pressing for the application, calling for people to repent, calling for people to entrust themselves into him. The preaching that those men did was intended to create a crisis. What do I believe or whom do I believe in? What am I resting my life upon? Jesus knew how to create a crisis through his teaching because man had created a crisis through Adam's sin. Jesus is speaking to sinners who are in a kingdom of darkness and he's offering them a kingdom of light and there's a crisis as to which kingdom they will live in. Peter learned this lesson because if we look to the book of Acts and we look at Peter's sermons, what do we see Peter doing? He, He gives truth. He talks about the death and resurrection of Jesus. He connects it to the Old Testament but he continually presses in to call people to faith and repentance. Paul, while he did not follow the earthly ministry of Jesus, does the same thing. We see Paul going to the synagogues first. Every city he goes to, first place he goes, the synagogue. What does he do? He proves from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah. And what is the implication of that? He's calling people to trust that Jesus and turn from their sin to Him. They preach about the crisis. Crisis of faith. We see this in many places throughout the book of Acts. You can look at Acts 13.12, for instance, to see some of this. And so fishing for men focuses on the authority of Jesus that's the first thing they learned about, they learned from Jesus and about Jesus as they followed him. How did this crisis reveal itself? Is uh, the first question that comes to my mind as I think through this text uh, in light of how we've answered the first question. While the audience in Capernaum is astonished, while it's amazed, we see no evidence that these people repented and believed. Now, it's possible some of them did, and Mark didn't tell us about that. You know, Mark is, uh, as we mentioned before, oftentimes short on the details that you and I might like to hear. Okay? But what we see is almost sermon interrupted. Because in the midst of this synagogue, synagogue service, we see immediately there was a man in their synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit. It went nuts. It got a little crazy in that probably normally stayed fairly boring synagogue service. Okay, Have you ever been there when someone uh, someone has gotten up and shouted at the preacher? Have you ever, anyone ever had an experience like that? Oh, yeah. Did you do it? No. <laughs> I'd rather you not. <laughs> but that, that becomes a very confrontational kind of thing, and what we have here is, in fact, a very confrontational kind of thing. 
this man has an unclean spirit. He has a demon. Okay, this is just one of the different words that can be used for this. It's a spirit that was ceremonially unclean. In other words, uh, was not normally permitted or, or legitimately permitted into the public worship of God. Okay, so this spirit doesn't belong there. Okay, it's also a morally unclean spirit, and that is is a it, it rebels against God. And not only is it uh, morally unclean, unclean rather in and of itself, but it's also making the man morally unclean. It is most likely enticing him to a variety of sins. There's a reason why this man is in bondage. We don't know the precise reason. But we know, for instance, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful or unclean spirit from the Lord tormented him. And so in the case of Saul, that spirit came as a result of his disobedience, his turning away from the Lord. We don't know about this particular man, Okay, but this man was under bondage and was being uh, harmed by this unclean spirit, and he finds himself in a synagogue where Jesus is teaching, and the spirit, the unclean spirit, is that which cries out. Loud, desperate, provoked, disturbed. The boys and I are watching the, the mummy movies. Uh, right now, because they're on Netflix. Okay, the ones with Brandon Fraser. And uh, for those of you who've seen them, they're, 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 this happens repeatedly throughout the movie. The mummy starts to go, this primal sort of scream, and then all kinds of bad things happen. That's it. That's what it was like. This loud, yell emerging from the center of the men in the synagogue of Capernaum, putting all eyes upon the man who seemingly screamed, but Mark knows it's actually an unclean spirit. Because it wasn't like everyone else knew that this man had an unclean spirit. Up till this point, they were probably clueless. Because they had tolerated him there. It wasn't like he suddenly showed up one day and suddenly had an unclean spirit. Most likely, he had been there Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath. And the worship of the, of the synagogue in Capernaum was so innocuous that he was not provoked. But with the coming of Jesus into that synagogue and the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom, now he's provoked. And now the unclean spirit cries out, what have you to do with us? Funny how it's changed. It's us. It could be uh, me and this man, or it could be me and other demons. We're not exactly sure, but he speaks for others. This phrase is actually an idiom. It makes no sense to us in English if we we're to translate it literally. Okay, it's an idiom, and it's, we find it a few times in the Old Testament. And it really, it's, it's an invitation to fight. You and me. That's basically what it is. 
you and me. The implication, let's throw down, let's tussle, let's go at it. And there's a sense here in which this unclean spirit is engaging Jesus in conflict in front of all of these people. He's challenging Jesus to something of a fight. He calls him Jesus of Nazareth. He knows where Jesus has lived. It seems to be some acknowledgement here of the full humanity of Jesus. But then comes this, this question, have you come to destroy, and once again, the us? Which leads me to believe that he's speaking not simply of himself and the man, but of himself and all the other unclean spirits that are there. This word destroy kind of has a range of meaning. It can mean render powerless, and it can mean obliterate, kill. Okay? There's a range of meaning there. And we, we need to sort of explore that just a little bit. But what I want you to remember here is that this is within the context of a kingdom crisis. This is a conflict between two kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God's beloved Son. There in the, the synagogue of Capernaum is the cosmic conflict. And wherever the preaching of the gospel is clear, there is going to be a kingdom conflict. That there will be people who struggle with the message and resist the message to flee the kingdom of darkness. Jesus came to destroy the devil's works. We see that in 1 John 3, verse 18. Again, we get back to, what does that mean? Is that on the the rendering powerless side, or is that the obliteration death side? And I think we have to understand it in light of Revelation 20. The binding of Satan and the the evil spirits, casting them into the abyss, awaiting till the the period of the end. Of course, right now, I'm talking about amillennialism, okay? Um, not premillennialism. We can have a conversation about that if you need to. Um, but a rendering of this unclean spirit powerless. He's not killing the spirit, but Jesus rather is going to put him to the place where he will await the judgment day. And so there's a sense in which judgment begins that day in the synagogue in Capernaum. The unclean spirit is not done. He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This demon recognizes that he's more than just a rabbi who happens to come from Nazareth. There's far more going on than the rest of the people in Capernaum understand. This phrase, Holy One of God, is used in the Old Testament 
Psalm 106, it's used of Aaron, the high priest. It's used in 2 Kings to speak of Elisha, the prophet who came after Elijah, the prophet. And it speaks of the fact that these were men who were called to great service. But we also reckon with passages like Job 6 and Isaiah 40, where the Holy One is a title for God. And so, on the one hand, yes, Jesus is called to a special service. He is the Messiah, but Jesus is also the Holy One. And He's the Holy One in the presence of an unholy spirit. And that can't continue. The demons, this is important for us to recognize, and remember, the demons know who Jesus is. The problem is, is they do not entrust themselves to Jesus, and they do not worship Jesus. James 2, for instance, he's challenging the faith of his audience. He says, you believe that God is one? In other words, you believe the Shema of Deuteronomy 6. You believe that? You do well, James says. Even the demons believe and shudder. They were afraid of the Holy One as opposed to loving the Holy One. They didn't entrust themselves to Him. They wanted to fight Him. And so we, we recognize, or we should recognize from this fact, that orthodoxy is necessary. We should hold to things like the Shema, the testimony of Israel, which, oddly enough, came up in my um, uh, Bible study at TEP this week. That's what you missed, Marty. That's what you get for going to Atlanta. Okay. Orthodoxy is necessary. But the demons instruct us that it is also insufficient. Fishing looks not just for an orthodox response, but it looks for faith and repentance. I keep coming back to that. Gee, I wonder why. That's because that is what Jesus was telling in his teaching. It looks for faith and repentance from men. So fishing for men produces a kingdom crisis around Jesus. And I want that to be uh, the key point here. That the, the crisis is about Jesus. We can have lots of um, crises in our discussions with people. And if you're on Facebook right now, you're probably involved in all kinds of discussions about abortion, unless you're burying your head in the sand. Okay, But that's not the most important crisis. The crisis is, who is Jesus and why does it matter? That's the important crisis. And so, in light of this answer to the second question that I had, I have a third question. How did Jesus resolve this kingdom crisis? What did he do? Let's remember that when Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, there were no witnesses. So in the wilderness, no witnesses. But here in the synagogue of Capernaum, 
there's a whole synagogue full of witnesses. Now, while I was in seminary and the, uh, for a year and a half after I graduated, I worked at the Orlando Union Rescue Mission. There's a, there's a little picture of, of the, uh, the men's uh, building that I worked in. And so this structure here on your left, that was the office where I worked in. And there was a door there, and we would screen men before we let them in, okay? And then we would uh, examine them more thoroughly. Well, one day, this guy came to the first window. And you know, you, there's sometimes things happen, you just can't really explain it or put your finger on it or something. I sensed evil. I don't, it wasn't like he was drunk. It wasn't like he was initially angry. <laughs> I made him angry because I wouldn't let him in. Because I sensed evil with regard to this person. And I don't know what was happening, and maybe, uh, I don't know. I haven't really had that experience very often in my life. But I had it then. And there was a sense in which I wanted nothing to do with him. And I told them to leave. That's not exactly what Jesus does here. He does something a little different. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. Jesus rebukes the unruly spirit who is disrupting the worship at Capernaum. The first part of his rebuke is to zip it. Or if it was Archie Bunker, he'd say, stifle. And that was a great day when he just said, stifle it, Archie, in response to him. They're the only people I ever hear say stifle. So, Archie and Edith Bunker. But he was to zip it. We probably would try to clean it up. Just like we sometimes tell our children, we don't say shut up. But I think Jesus said shut up. Hold your tongue, say nothing else. Okay? This is not a child that Jesus is speaking to. He's not respecting the dignity of a person because he's speaking to an unclean spirit. Okay, kiddos, there's the difference for you. When you tell someone to shut up, you're talking to another human being. Jesus wasn't talking to a human being. Okay? Stifle. Precisely because Jesus does not want to distort the people's understanding of him. Because even unclean spirits, though they might speak some truth, are going to try and twist it a little bit, just as their father the devil did back in the garden. The messianic secret is something that scholars talk about a lot. And actually, it's odd because the, the messianic secret as a phrase started uh, to, as this idea that um, Jesus was hiding who he was because he had things to hide, as though he'd done something wrong. Uh, there, there's a new um, writer who's going to cover the Boston Red Sox. Okay? And in taking this job, what he ended up doing was deleting his Twitter history. Now, some of you think that's nefarious because I heard you. 
Mm-hmm. Well, he's a Yankees fan. <laughs> and he thought it might be a good idea that he got rid of all of the Yankees love from his Twitter feed uh, when he went to cover the Red Sox. Okay? Jesus is not trying to cover up something in his past. He's not trying to cover up who his daddy was or any of that kind of stuff that liberal scholars seem to think Jesus wanted to hide. Okay? But this is really about John's, uh, sorry, the timing. As we, as we went through the Gospel of John, we kept seeing that phase, it was not yet his time, or a variation on it, his time had not come. Okay? While Jesus is willing to, to undergo the conflict, it's not time for the big C conflict that results in the cross. And to push his identity, the fullness of, of his identity, at that point in time would have meant that it would cut short his earthly ministry. And so, quiet about this. But the second and most important part about this is that Jesus then performs an exorcism. He commands the unclean spirit to leave this man. Jesus is, on the one hand, executing judgment upon the unclean spirit, but also exercising compassion upon the man who was enslaved by the spirit. And so we see Jesus, in a sense, setting prisoners free, as his messianic um, mission was as we, uh, from Isaiah 61. Jesus, filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is setting people free from unclean spirits. The Spirit cries out again. That whole mummy thing, I won't do it for you. My child might put it on Instagram. Um, the spirit immediately comes out of the man. It's angry and possibly injured. We don't really know, and we don't know where it went, because Mark doesn't tell us any of this about this particular incident. But we do see the response of the people who were there. They were all amazed, it says. What is this new teaching with authority? What's interesting is that amazed is not the same word that is used earlier for astonished. This one has a connotation of fear. Before the audience was, wow, and they're engaged. Now it's like, whoa, what just happened here? I'm not sure I want a part of that. There's an element of fear that's there. But they tie it to his teaching. Jesus was not simply one who taught with authority, but Jesus was one who exercised authority over the unclean spirit. Even the unclean spirit obeyed him. Jesus didn't use rituals. Jesus didn't use incantations. Jesus didn't use spells. And that is what the exorcists of his day did. Okay? We see something similar if you watch the movie The Exorcist. 
uh, you know, the, the Roman Catholic, ri- Catholic ritual for exorcism. It's incantations, basically. It's ritual. Jesus didn't use any of that. It's similar to Genesis 1. He spoke, it happened. Get out of him, it went. What we see, what we read in Acts 19 about the seven sons of Sceva, I think is illustrative. Because they tried to use an incantation. They were similar to the exorcists of their day. And they said, by the power of this name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Okay, They thought that, that if they just used the right formula, the unclean spirit would obey them. And the unclean spirit, of course, responded, I know Jesus, and I recognize Paul, but who in the world are you? And that one man beat the snot out of the seven sons of Sceva, so badly that they ran away naked. See, I mean, that's just a picture of absolute getting whooped. If you're running away naked, you just got whooped. And there's seven of you running away naked. You got really whooped. That did not happen to Jesus. It left, not Jesus. We see in Acts as well that the apostles, okay, and even right before this, in this event in Ephesus, we see the, the, the apostles repeatedly cast out spirits in order to authenticate, not themselves, but the teaching about Jesus, that that Jesus has power. We see it in places like Acts 14, verse 3, 16, verse 18, just to mention a few. Uh, but you know, it's different from um, what we see if you go to Casa Grande. Actually, I think this happened a couple weeks ago. Yo, Matt. He was writing. He was taking notes. He was not sleeping. So we, we had, uh, well, this is a different kind of, a different event, but a miracle revival. But I noticed when I was driving up I-10, uh, I can't remember why I was driving. Oh, I was going to Presbytery. That's right. Going to the Presbytery meeting, and I noticed there is the, the billboard for the uh, miracle revival that was going to take place, and miracles were going to take place. How can you predict miracles? That ministry and ministries like it are diametrically opposed to the ministry of the apostles. Jesus didn't put a sign in front of the synagogue in Capernaum saying, Miracle, this Sabbath, come on down. He could have because, I mean, Jesus probably knew the guy was going to be there. And I say diametrically opposed, I mean, the apostles did perform miracles. They did cast out demons but they were not advertising ahead of time that that they would do it at a specific time in a specific place. They were not in control. These people seem to think like they're in control of this, which is very different. And if you have questions about that, you can talk to me later. It's okay. All right? 
we see that in the instances of, of the apostles as well as the instances of Jesus here, the unclean spirits obeyed immediately. But here's the rub. There's no indication that the people in Capernaum obeyed. The only indication is that the reputation of Jesus spread throughout Galilee. Think of that for a moment. You're there. You see all this. You're probably a little freaked out because you've probably never seen anything like this before. Do you put your faith in the man who cast out the evil spirit? Or do you run away from him because you're afraid of what he might do to you? That's really a lot of what this comes down to. Jesus even exercises authority over unclean spirits. So if we're to wrap all of this up, Jesus reveals his authority in his teaching and his authority over unclean spirits. Well, you could say from one perspective that I followed R.C. Sproul to Orlando, and I did learn quite a bit in my time in Orlando from him and from others. Some of what I learned, I said, is uh, that he also had weaknesses and blemishes, and that's okay because he's just a man. But the first disciples learned that Jesus had authority. An authority to his teaching that everyone else lacks. There's no one else like Jesus. He's unique in that regard. Jesus addressed life and he produced a crisis of conflict. What will you do if that's who Jesus is? The disciples also learned that Jesus engaged the powers of darkness and won. Jesus displayed compassion on the people in bondage to the demons, but no compassion for the demons. And we're, to call, we're called to follow this same Jesus and to fish for men by bringing them to crisis points regarding Jesus. Is he who he says he is? Has he done what the Bible says he's done? And if he has, do you entrust yourself to him? Let's pray. Father, we sit in those seats. We have to ask that question of ourselves at times. It's not a bad question for us to ask. May your spirit be at work so that we do entrust ourselves to Jesus. That the more we learn about Jesus, the more we entrust ourselves to Jesus. And we pray for your spirit also to be at work to make us bold to speak about Jesus and calling people to entrust themselves to Jesus. Whether it's our kids our neighbors, 
our extended family, whatever opportunities you will provide us with, give us boldness to speak about who Jesus is and what he's done and to call people to faith and repentance. And we ask this in his name. Amen.